Hi, everyone. I've got something to share before we get started with this episode. If you're not already a subscriber to the Financial Times, this is for you. On Wednesday, September the 18th, that's this Wednesday, we're lifting the paywall on FT.com. That means you can read everything from the latest on global oil supply to the ins and outs of the US-China trade dispute. We'll be recommending a few stories in our show notes. Now, on with today's show. Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a molecular biologist who has specialised in the area of science policy and bioethics. One of the issues that we're potentially going to face when it comes to regulation is how do we regulate these devices when they're not just in the medical sphere? You know, we have really good regulation for medical technologies, but what happens if you can go on Amazon and buy the parts for a DIY kit? How is that going to be regulated? That was Sarah Chan, who contributed to this month's report on neurotechnology from the Royal Society, the UK's senior scientific academy. She came into the FT studio to talk about the report, which suggested the UK could become a world leader in this technology, but also highlighted the ethical risks it poses. Sarah, can you tell us... What do we mean by neural interfaces? I think it would be very useful for our audience to understand the definition of this term. So our nervous system is the way that we sense and communicate with our environment. So it allows us to take information in and then act on it. And neural interfaces are devices that are capable of interacting either directly or indirectly with those nerve signals. They can be either in the brain or in parts of the body, and they can be either implanted externally, such as brain implants, or they can be worn externally. It sounds very much in the kind of realm of science fiction, but what struck me about the report was really how extensively this technology is already being used. For example, I was reading that there are 400,000 people with cochlear implants and it's already being used to help treat Parkinson's disease and so on. Tell us a bit about that. What are the good use cases at the moment of this neural interface technology? So you've mentioned already a couple of the best-known cochlear implants and deep brain stimulation for disorders of movement, including Parkinson's disease. The sorts of applications that are being developed now include rehabilitative technologies, uh, so again for movement disorders, things like assistive or adaptive technologies that help people who've lost function, say in some sort of physical way, to replace or to make up for that. Prosthetic limbs, for example, that are able directly to interface with the nerves in a participant's arm or leg. We're also seeing the development of these technologies for things like mental health. So there's a suggestion that brain stimulation could be effective in treating severe depression, also in conditions like chronic pain. And if we think about the difficulty we currently have in effectively treating these diseases and the huge burden on the healthcare system, as well as the huge personal burden for people suffering from these conditions, there's no doubt that these technologies have huge potential for benefit. How do we make sure that they continue to have benefit? What do you think we need to do as a society to make sure that we are constantly getting the good use cases out of this technology and avoiding the bad. This perspective from the Royal Society comes at a really timely moment. So we're seeing acceleration in technological capacity. We are also seeing an acceleration in innovation, that is in turning that technological capacity into application. 
And I think we're really at a point where there's an opportunity, particularly in this country where there's so much good science going on, but also where we have a history of responsible innovation to think about how we manage these technologies, what sort of strategies we have in place, what sort of policies we need to make sure that we're able to realise that potential in an ethical and socially responsible way. A big part of that, of course, is going to be involving publics in the discussion. And the Royal Society work involved a series of public dialogues in which people were encouraged to engage with these technologies, to think about the possible futures that we might bring about with neural interfaces, which futures are more desirable, which are less desirable, and how we go about steering and shaping this technology to achieve the desirable outcomes. How did you personally become interested in this area? My interest is in the ethics of emerging technologies and, of course, neurotechnologies that can interface with the brain are one of the most interesting areas because they really prompt us to question, I suppose, as we become cyborgs, as we become I-humans and start to merge ourselves with machines, what does that mean about human nature? What does it do to our sense of self and identity to think that machines are perhaps modulating the way we experience the world or maybe modulating our decisions and our actions? So really kind of fundamental philosophical questions that we've always asked about the meaning of being human, about free will and responsibility are being brought up in new ways by these devices. Sounds to me like you're going to be very busy for the next few years as this revolution accelerates. But can you tell us more about what you think needs to be done at this stage? I mean, you're saying that you need to engage the public more in a debate on these issues. What are the ethical concerns that we should be thinking about and we need to address now? I think one big concern that's been brought up a number of times, and that includes in the discussions we've had with public so far, is to do with privacy. Now, of course, as soon as you talk about mind reading or telepathy, people get worried about other people being able to see what's inside their heads. It's important to be realistic about the state of the technology, so we're really not yet at a point where a neural interface can reach into your head and pluck out a specific thought. We're talking more the domain of being able to sense things like emotional responses. So we can't mind read, but we might be able to mood read, for example. But I think even so, that has implications for people's sense of privacy. And one issue we're going to have to particularly think about is the use of data, so these neural interface devices are going to be capable of generating and of collecting and transmitting huge amounts of data. In fact, that functionality is central to their purpose. So a neural interface needs, if you like, to learn your brain or learn your nerve signals in order to be able to have a consistent effect. What gets done with all that data? Who owns it? Who's in control of it? What can they use it for? And because I suppose we're talking here about data that has the potential to reveal things about an individual's personal life, about their behaviours, maybe about some aspects of their thinking. There are reasons that people feel this is particularly sensitive. Of course, the concern over data use isn't limited to neural interfaces. So we've seen this issue come up in relation to smart devices, in relation to social media, in relation to health data. So data privacy is something that we need to think more about in various areas. I think our experience recently with social media data use has taught us that we need to think very carefully about who is using that information and what for, because if it's used in certain ways, it can have potentially very damaging consequences for individuals and for society. I mean, as you say, even the concept of mood reading, even if it's not mind reading itself, 
in itself raises a whole load of ethical questions, doesn't it? I mean, to what extent should governments be able to use this or police forces who are investigating a crime as to whether people are reacting in a certain way? And on the issue of data use, it's no coincidence, I think, that you were talking about some of the social media companies and Facebook clearly are one of the companies that are at the forefront of trying to use this technology. So can you tell us a bit more? I mean, how can you stop the potential, at least, for governments or big tech companies doing bad things with this technology? I think we need to be careful not to lump governments and big tech Mm -hmm. together in the same basket. I think the Facebook example you brought up really illustrates some of the ethical complexities. So a few years ago, Facebook got in trouble for running a series of experiments on its users. You've probably heard of the social contagion experiments, they called them. And what they were trying to do here was to see whether they could influence the mood of their users by feeding them certain information. So we're going one step beyond mood reading to trying to control users' moods. What's interesting about this case, so there were various ethical complexities surrounding the governance of the research, etc. But in fact, each and every person who was a participant or a subject, if you like, in that research had signed up to Facebook's terms and conditions, which include that they may do research with your data. So if you like, although the consent was not very informed, they had given consent. Now, Facebook got in trouble when they tried to publish this data, And had they not tried to publish it, it might not have been seen as research. They might not have been in trouble with their institutional research review board. But how much worse if they had done all that, all the experiments, and then not even published the research? So we wouldn't have known it had happened. They could still be using that information for their private gain, and we would just have no control over it. So what lessons can we draw from this? One is that individual consent is very rarely informed enough. Individual consent probably isn't the be-all and end-all of what's ethical, even if it is informed, because let's say I read the 200-page terms of service and I opt out. If companies nonetheless use everybody else's data to develop systems of mood control, that's still bad for me, as well as bad for society. I think there is a real concern over the potential commercial valorization of data, because as soon as you can make money out of it, I guess the incentives to do the right thing might be outweighed. I think as far as government uses, there are obviously questions about what sorts of assurances, what sorts of social systems we'd need in place to feel that governments were trustworthy with our data. But I think we have at least slightly better systems of transparency and accountability, at least slightly better for government than we necessarily do for regulating private companies. I guess there are also at least two different ways of trying to tackle this. One, I guess, would be that the practitioners themselves sign up to some design terms, a Hippocratic oath, as it were, when they're trying to use this technology. And the second would be to have a more regulated approach, almost a kind of FDA for neural electrodes, in the sense that it would have to have explicit approval to do this. So either of those approaches useful, do you think? The idea of something like a Hippocratic Oath for scientists has been suggested a number of times. Obviously, it is based on the medical model. The interesting thing, of course, is that it's not just the presence or absence of a Hippocratic Oath that constrains doctors and healthcare practitioners to behave ethically. There's the whole culture of what it is to be a good doctor. There's the culture of professional ethics. And so I think An oath or the absence of an oath isn't really the critical thing here. What is important is building that culture from the ground up of social responsibility, of thinking more broadly about the ethical dimension. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And again, I think that's where this report is such a good start because it has brought together scientists who have said we need to think about the ethics, we need to think about regulation, about the social dimensions, and we need to have all of those parties in the conversation. As far as the issue of regulation... You've touched on something interesting there with your analogy with the FDA, because of course one of the interesting features about neural interfaces as a technology case, if you like, is that they are emerging across all of these different spheres, so not just healthcare. We did talk about some of the health benefits, but there's potential in communications technology, in education, things like social systems, so transport, for example, as well as the lifestyle and entertainment applications. So one of the issues that we're potentially going to face when it comes to regulation is how do we regulate these devices when they're not just in the medical sphere? You know, we have really good regulation for medical technologies, but what happens if you can go on Amazon and buy the parts for a DIY kit? How is that going to be regulated? So I think we need policymakers to be thinking across sectors and working out where the gaps are, where the overlaps are, and how we can act together most effectively. Now, some legal scholars have waded into this field as well, and I was looking at some who have been talking about the need to create a kind of right to cognitive liberty. In other words, if you're an employee of a company, you can refuse if your employer wants to use an electronic skull cap to monitor your brain activity. There should be a right to mental privacy, that we should explicitly state that your brain data is private and should not be shared with anyone. Uh, The right to mental integrity, in other words, that companies should not attempt to brainwash you in the sense of trying to use this technology to influence you in ways that you don't even realise you're being influenced. And the right to psychological continuity, as they call it. And I think this has been an issue with some epilepsy cases where electrodes have been used and then the companies have gone bankrupt and the individuals have a sense that they have lost their identity as a result of this. So do you think that's a useful way of looking at it? Should there be legal definitions that could help frame this debate as well? I'm basically in agreement with the existence of all of those, at least as moral rights, not necessarily legal rights, because those will be protected in certain particular ways. But yes, I think we should have the right to cognitive liberty. Yes, I think we should have the right to mental privacy. And all of these derive from a much more basic and fundamental moral right, which is our right to self-determination, our right to respect for ourselves as autonomous persons. So I think that's not really in doubt. What I think is interesting is that we are focusing the discussion of these rights so specifically on these technologies. Because actually, if we think about it, people's sense of psychological continuity of identity can as easily be disrupted by something like a life-changing event where a company goes bankrupt and your life is thrown into disarray, your country is at war, your life's thrown into disarray. There are all sorts of narrative disruptions that can have these effects right now without the need for neural interfaces. 
Ditto the issue of whether your employer should be able to monitor your private thoughts. Well, employers are already starting to try to assert their right to monitor you by reading your emails. Some employers are saying that they should be able to look at your social media to try and determine what's going on in your personal life. So, yes, I think we need to defend all of these rights, but what we need to defend them against isn't necessarily neural interface technologies. Now, one fascinating voice in this whole debate clearly is Elon Musk, who runs this company Neuralink, which made a bit of a splash this summer when they announced what they were doing. And in his understanding of what's going on, at the moment, pretty much all of us are already cyborgs. We already are massively dependent on our smartphones to enhance our capabilities. And in a way, in the way that he was explaining it, all we're doing is improving the interface between man and machine. Having neural links, as it were, is upgrading humans. Fingers and words are a very bad way of interconnecting with computers and that we would be far more efficient if we could combine the cognitive power of the brain with the processing power of the computer in far quicker ways. Is that a useful way of conceptualising what's going on or is it just a downright scary way of thinking about it? I think there's something in the idea that neural interfaces are just the next step in technology. So we now have smartphones, so the computer comes with us wherever we go. In fact, I've sometimes wished on days when I've accidentally left my phone at home and I'm cut off from contact with the outside world, I've occasionally wished it was implantable so that I wouldn't accidentally forget it. But even before that, the desktop computer and the World Wide Web provided a new form of connectivity. And then if we roll even further back, just things like literacy, so the written word and the ability to read and write, all of these have represented changes in our relationship with technology, changes in our relationship with information and with each other. And people have been sceptical of the changes that those technologies will bring really at all stages. I mean, even Plato talked about the written word as the pharmacon. Should we be scared of these technologies? I don't think so necessarily. I think we need to have a healthy sense of what's realistic now, what the challenges and opportunities are that are coming up, and to think about not just the harms and the scary stories, but also the benefits that we might achieve. One of the concerns, I guess, about what Elon Musk is saying is that if you have a concept of augmented humans or a super race, that this would create inequalities on a scale that we cannot even conceive of today, that you would have people who would be able to think and act so much faster than all the rest of us. Is that something that needs to be guarded against or even can it be guarded against? One of the concerns with, I think, any new technology that has tremendous beneficial potential, as neural interfaces do, is this question about access. So who's going to be able to access these technologies and how? And I think it is the case, if they do produce all or even some of the promised benefits, that if only some of us can access them and not others, that's clearly going to create inequalities. Now, that's not a reason that we shouldn't go about developing the technologies, but it is a reason that we need to think carefully about how they're implemented, how they are made available, and ensure that we're trying not only to avoid widening inequities, but using them to address current inequities. So going back to the history of technology, if you like, I talked about reading and writing. And it used to be actually the case that literacy was a technology of the elite. And we've gone from that to a position where we have at least in high-income countries, almost universal literacy. I say almost, but it's not universal. So we already have gaps in educational attainment. We have gaps that really materially impact the way that people can participate in our society. So if you're functionally illiterate, 
There are many jobs that are not open to you. You may have difficulty in accessing basic social services. You may have difficulty accessing your democratic right to vote. So we already have these massive inequities within society. I think the trap in thinking about equity in terms of access to technologies, if we look at neural interfaces and we think about the possible inequities of access that might result and we say, well, okay, we just won't go that way then. We can wipe our hands and walk away and say, there we are, we've fixed the problem of social injustice. And in actual fact, we haven't. It exists now. It exists before we have these technologies. And so actually what we need to be doing is devoting our energies to fixing the inequities that currently exist and thinking about how we can actively use these new technologies in the most just way possible. I guess the other argument that Elon Musk makes is that this, in a way, is the last best chance for humanity in a world as he sees it, in which artificial intelligence is inevitably going to supersede humans in the not-too-distant future. This is a great way of merging with machines. If you can't beat them, join them, I think was the phrase that he used. Is that a useful way of looking at this? The idea of a super-powerful, malevolent artificial intelligence is one that's been brought up a number of times. So the idea of Skynet, for example. My understanding of AI is that most people currently working in the field don't see that as likely anytime soon, indeed, if ever. I think it is most likely because we will be controlling the development of artificial intelligence, we would be hopefully guiding their evolution so as not to be hostile to us. That said, I think an interesting situation is going to arise the day the first artificially intelligent computer turns around and says, please don't switch me off. <laughs> and I think there are good reasons to start thinking about what we'll do when that day comes. Will we think of an AI robot as one of us? And if we want them to think of us as one of them, the least we can do is think about extending them the same consideration. So I'm definitely on the we don't necessarily need to beat them. We probably should join them, or rather we should let them join us. Do we need to physically merge with them in order to do it? Well, not necessarily. That said, if by implanting neural interfaces we can increase the range of benefits that are open to us, there's not necessarily any reason that we shouldn't do so. But it doesn't need to be a literal merging of human and machine. And the Royal Society is clearly doing a great service in putting a lot of these issues into the public domain and trying to stimulate a public debate on these issues. Are you hopeful that it will end up in a good place? Yes, I am. And I say that even more after having seen some of the public dialogue work that's come about. So we sometimes think that you go and ask the general public about technology and they'll tell you all the reasons why they don't want it. And that's absolutely not the case. In this case, what we saw was enthusiasm, excitement, interest and lots of hopes around the potential, both in the healthcare sphere, so people who are worried about their loved ones suffering from disease, etc., but also for the range of just exciting and cool applications that these technologies might have. I think the public dialogues also illustrated the extent to which people do have the capacity to reflect very deeply on these issues, to express what it is they want, and also to express the desire to be part of it. So one interesting thing about neural interfaces is, as I said, they're going to be emerging across a lot of different domains. That means people are going to be accessing the technology in a whole variety of ways. 
how do we integrate the learning that we're going to get from that? How do we integrate results from, say, clinical trials of a device together with the people who are out there buying and putting things together themselves, together with the people who've maybe been living with one already for the last several years? How do we use the data that people are generating as, if you like, citizen scientists around neural interfaces in order to help develop the technology across the board? Well, my main conclusion from this conversation is it's a very good job that we've got ethicists at the centre of this debate. So thank you very much for a fascinating conversation, Sarah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.